You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, January 26, 2023. I'm Kirby Nelson from Drake University. Here is our first story. We're getting started today with the Council Bluffs Schools Award Bid for Paving Work by Tim Johnson. Council Bluffs Community School District is going to take care of a substantial amount of concrete work this summer. The district's Board of Education on Tuesday approved a bid of $571,352.50 from Carly Construction of Council Bluffs for concrete repair at College View Elementary, Wilson Middle School, and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln High Schools. While it's a substantial amount of money, the bid was the lowest of five on the work and almost $200,000 lower than the next lowest one. It's also more than $300,000 lower than HGM Associates' original estimate of $890,240. The district asked HGM and Associates to review all concrete in the district and make recommendations for the areas in greatest need of attention for a summer 2023 project, according to board materials. The architectural firm found areas at Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson High Schools, Wilson Middle School, and College Field Elementary School that engineers consider mostly urgently. The architectural firm found areas at Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson High Schools, Wilson Middle School, and College Field Elementary School that engineers consider most urgent in need of repair. HGM advised putting the projects together to make the job big enough to attract bids from large contractors. Carly's bid included $223,095 for the work at Abraham Lincoln, where new pavement will be installed for the driveway that goes to and across the back of the building and the sidewalk by the tennis courts. Repairs will be made to a variety of pavement joints and patches. The company tabbed the work at College View at $200,217.50. That project will include repaving the main driveway and some sidewalks and repairing bad spots in the parking lot. Carly penned in $99,570 for the work at Jefferson, which will include repaving the east sidewalk and the small parking lot at the southeast corner of the main building and repairing multiple patches in the main parking lot. The work at Wilson was calculated at $48,470 that will cover repaving the driveway between the school building and tennis courts and athletic field. In other words, the board approved a bid of $203,906 from Rasmund Mechanical of Council Bluffs to replace a failed air conditioning compressor with an energy recovery ventilator at Rue Elementary School. Rasmund's bid was the lowest of three received. Approved a bid of $29,265 from Rasmussen to replace a freezer condenser at the Nutrition Warehouse. It was the lowest of two bids received. Approved a resolution to request $3,034,513 of modified supplemental funding for the at-risk and dropout prevention program for the 2023-2024 school year. The state will pay 75% of the cost and the rest will come from local taxes. However, this is not expected to require an increase in the cash reserve levy rate. Next up, public-private educators disagree on private school scholarships impact by Tim Johnson. The day after Governor Kim Reynolds signed a bill into law to make $7,600 scholarships available to K-12 students who attend private schools, Educators from private and public schools saw the competition of one of her key legislative goals differently. Directors of Council Bluffs' two private K-12 schools were ecstatic 
while the superintendent of its two public school systems were concerned about the effect it will have on Iowa's public schools. The scholarship program is expected to cost $107 million in its first year and $345 million after a three-year phase in, in period. Ann Rowling, president of St. Albert Catholic School, said she was grateful to the governor and legislator for their support of this measure. This is a great day for Iowa, she said. This law is about empowering our parents to decide what's best for their child's education. It's about giving every child an education that fits their needs. The St. Albert Catholic community has been praying for this legislation for years. It is truly a game changer for our school and our community. Larry Gray, executive director of Heartland Christian School, has had a, a similar reaction. I know that we have been, there has been many parents who have been praying about this for quite some time, and they now have the feeling their prayers have been answered and their voices heard by the legislator, he said. Lewis Central Superintendent Brent Hossing said the scholarships won't really be available to all students because of the, of the way private schools operate. Private schools have the ability to accept, deny, or kick out any student they choose, he said. If this bill were truly about children, minimal requirements would have been put into place to require those institutions who desire to accept the educational savings account money to accept any students, regardless of their academic, physical, religious, social, emotional, mental, or behavioral needs. Public schools do this. We accept and serve anyone and everyone who walks through our doors. Both Rowling and Gray said they feel that the law is fair since the students, since the parents of private school students also pay the taxes that fund public education. I don't believe financing the students on a per-pupil basis is a fair way to do it, Rowling said. That gives the parents a true choice of what to do with the money taxpayers contribute to education. For that reason, Rowling does not believe the scholarship should be income-based. It is taxpayers' money that is earmarked for education regardless of a person's means, she said. Hosing said it won't matter that it is not income-based. Many private schools charge beyond what the cost of an ESA is, and they simply don't have the means to forgive the difference for all students who want to attend, he said. This bill does not prohibit them from accepting the ESA and charging students difference. A simple amendment requiring all schools to enroll those using an ESA for the cost of an ESA, especially those who, have, who meet income limits, would have solved this, said Gray. This bill is what we have felt is fair to our taxpaying parents who desire a Christian education within the state standards. Housing was skeptical that it could be fair. I don't know that there is a fair way to fund private education when public schools are struggling to staff and to provide the basic classroom essentials for instruction due to lack of funding, he said. I am not an opponent to private education, but I am a former business teacher and math enthusiast and have been in school district administration for 11 years. My conversations with state leaders regarding a modest increase in educational funding has been returned time and time again with a reply of there isn't ava more, any more funding available. Rowling does not believe it will hurt public schools. We know there are many fine public schools and the percentage of the education budget covering the non-public schools is very minimal, she said. Gray thinks he said he thinks there will be a competition between public and private schools to offer the best education to students, but does not think it will hurt anyone. Public education in Council Bluffs has improved immensely the past few years, so this is not a negative critique of our community schools, he said. Parents have the right to be involved in their children's education from curriculum talk to ideals that children are subjected to on a regular basis into the scope of morals that have seemed to be lacking in our nation's public education. Our parents chose Heartland Christian because of the kindred morals, beliefs, and convictions, as would, I would assume, any private parent. 
Housing and Council Bluff Superintendent Vicki Murillo are both concerned that state funding for public schools will hurt if some of the dollars for education are routed to private schools. There will likely be a negative impact on the resources available to our school district as state funding is diverted to private or religious institutions, Murillo said. However, we won't know the full impact until all the details are finalized. Said Housing, time will tell. If the legislators and governor follow through with their promise to ensure that this won't hurt public schools, then there are many things that will have to be ensured that doesn't happen. For instance, if private entities pull any number of students from our rural schools, the rural schools will be in a world of hurt. They already don't provide some services for students because they can't afford it. Music, career, technical education, foreign language, elementary art, etc. In talking to a legislator, he has stated that there was an estimated estimating this change would impact only 5% of the students attending public schools, he said. In Lewis Central, 5% of our students would equal 150 students. That would result in a $1,140,000 cut to our budget. Removing $7,600 from our budget and giving us a limited $1,200 in return still hurts our school. The public school superintendent feels regulations for public and private schools need to be the same. It will be important for any institution that benefits from the use of public funds to be accountable for the use of the funds, Murillo said. This includes reporting on standardized testing for all students and public audit of the organizational financial records, said Hazing. They should have all the same requirements, accountability, board of controls, admission, testing, reporting, etc. The state should not have varying requirements for like entities receiving the same funding. Regarding the different requirements for private schools, Gray said, I can't speak to other state private schools, but Heartland Christian School is an accredited school that has some of the highest standards in the state. Our Iowa assessment scores continue to rank high school-wide, and our students are being taught over and above our state standards. I'm not sure of what our public schools are required to report, but we are accountable to our accreditation. Body with our staff hires, our standards, and our financial stability and accountability, said Rowling. St. Albert Catholic is an accredited school. We have accredited teachers. We have testing and state reporting, as do the public schools. Morrell hopes the action signifies a willingness on the legislator's part to devote more resources to education. We remain optimistic that the Iowa legislator will not prioritize the investment in public education with an increase in state supplemental assistance to a level for next year that allows school districts to begin to keep pace with inflationary cost increases, she said. As far as competition, Mario believes student parents will have who currently send their children to public schools will continue to do so. We are confident that most parents will continue to choose our school district for the opportunities we provide students, as well as the support we have established to enrich the educational experience for each student, she said. From the wide variety of extracurricular activities and athletics, fine arts and leadership to advanced course course access, and the attainment of college credit and career credentials through Diploma Plus pathways, we have more to offer than ever before. Our outstanding and highly qualified teaching and support staff will continue to skillfully meet the needs of each and every student. Hosing sees missed opportunities is a law. The bolt provides no guaranteed choice for those who have academic, physical, social, emotional, mental, or behavioral needs. He said, it does not guarantee choice for those in poverty. My fear is that the funding estimates used to move this bill forward only extend six years. In 2026, our state revenue will significantly decrease due to the set cut in income taxes. As we move forward, my hope is that legislators thought beyond six years to ensure all programming can continue to be provided.
Moving on, on the front page of the newspaper, there's a very nice picture with the caption, Silhouetted songbirds gather near the top of a tree at Lake Manawaha State Park's Boy Scout Island on Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Today will be mostly sunny with a high near 28, according to the National Weather Service. Winds could be could gust as high as 23 miles per hour. Next up, we have AG-backed bill will increase penalties for selling drug resulting in death by Caleb McCollum. Des Moines. Delivery of a drug reporting resulting in a death would carry up to a 25-year sentence under a bill proposed by Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd. The bill passed subcommittees in both the Iowa House and Senate on Wednesday. Currently, the maximum charge that can be pursued against a person who sells a drug resulting in death is for the delivery itself, a Class C felony. Prosecutors can pursue an involuntary manslaughter charge, but that penalty is a lesser Class D felony. The bill would make the sale of a drug resulting in in death a Class B felony, putting it on the same level as attempted murder and killing a person while driving intoxicated. Marijuana is exempt from this bill. A Class B felony is punishable by up to 25 years in prison. Byrd, a Republican, said during a Senate subcommittee on the bill that the proposal aims to address a rising rate of overdoses in Iowa. It's so important that we can seek justice for those victims and their families, so I'm very encouraged and looking forward to working with the governor and the legislature as we move forward, she said in one interview. Iowa has one of the lowest overdose death rates in the United States. Iowa ranked fifth lowest of the 50 states in 2021, but the number of deaths has been increasing, following national trends over the past several years. In 2021, 470 Iowans died of drug overdoses, according to Governor Kim Reynolds' office. Iowa elected officials had have been sounding alarms about an increase in overdose deaths in the state in recent years, driven in part by an increased presence of fentanyl, a potent opioid. Bird said raising the penalties would bring the law into line with the severity of the crime. It is not dealt with the way that it should be, and the way that some other states and even federal law would deal with it, she said. But some lobbyists and advocates were concerned that the bill would be counterproductive, bringing harsh charges for situations that may not warrant it. Lisa Davis-Cook, a lobbyist for the Iowa Association for Justice, said the organization, which is registered against the bill, has concerns about whether the bill would act as a deferent. What about the college kid who shares drug with a friend, then leaves, and that that friend dies? So they can't report the overdose. Are those really the people that we want to be charging with the Class B felony, Davis Cook said? Democratic Rep. Ross Wilburn of Ames was the sole lawmaker to not sign on to passing the bill out of a subcommittee. He said he's not opposed to the bill, but he would like to gather information about the bill's impact on minorities and see the details of a similar bill expected to come out of Governor Kim Reynolds' office. Responding to concerns, Byrd said she thinks that the penalty proposed in the bill is the right approach. She noted that the penalty is lower than the federal charge, which carries up to a 40-year sentence. When someone provides illegal drugs to someone and those drugs kill that person, we need to have a law that takes account of that, she said. Mahaska County Attorney Andrew Ritland said he's been working to get the law changed for a few years after a woman died of a drug overdose in his county. Ashley Schaefer, a 24-year-old from Oskaloosa, died in 2019 after being injected with metamphetamine. Three men that gave her a drug took her body to a river and did not report the death. In that case, a Class C felony was the harshest penalty Ritland could pursue, he said. The Class D involuntary manslaughter felony is also very difficult to prove, he said. It doesn't really even have to begin to reflect the amount of harm that's done in those sort of cases, he said. 
The bill also creates an exemption for Iowa's Good Samaritan Law, which provides legal protections for a person who calls emergency services when they or another person are experiencing an overdose. Upcoming Reynolds bill addresses fentanyl. Reynolds said in her condition of the state address, she would be introducing a bill that would increase the sentences for selling fentanyl and double or triple the penalty if the sales result in death. I'm calling on the legislature to increase penalties for manufacturing and distributing fentanyl in any amount, she said during her address on January 10th. That means longer sentences and higher fines, even when the quantity is small. And when an overdose leads to death or serious injury, the sentences will be even steeper. Reynolds has proposed punishing the sale of 5 grams or less of fentanyl with up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $50,000, between 5 and 50 grams with 25 years and up to $100,000, and more than 50 grams with 50 years and a fine of up to $1 million. If the sale results in death, the punishment could be two or three times higher, and it would be two times higher if a person manufactures or delivers fentanyl in the presence of a minor. Reynolds' Office of Drunk Control policy is registered undecided on the Byrd's bill because Reynolds will be introducing a similar bill, but lobbyists said that the office is generally supportive of the measure. We are absolutely supportive of the concept of a stronger deterrent for those folks that are trafficking those extremely deadly drugs into the state of Iowa, said Susie Scher, a lobbyist with Reynolds' Drug Control Office. Tom Barton of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau contributed to this report. Next story today, we have the Bluffs Chamber of Commerce joins with Foundation to Sponsor Civics B by Tim Johnson. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, in partnership with local and state chambers of commerce, will sponsor the 2023 National Civics B the Foundation has announced. The national competition The national competition is designed to inspire young Americans to learn more about the American democracy, to engage respectfully and constructively in their communities, and to help build trust in other peoples and institutions, according to a press release from the foundation. The Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce is co-sponsor of the local contest, one of only four in Iowa connected to the National Bee. The others are in Ames, Mason City, and Burlington. Council Bluffs Community School District Superintendent Vicki Murillo applauded the Chamber's involvement. I'm pleased that our Council Bluffs Chamber of Commerce is sponsoring the local Civics Bee, she said. Civics is an important subject that engages our community's young people in understanding how they fit within a greater community and how they as citizens can make a difference. We welcome opportunities like this so that our students can demonstrate their knowledge on a larger stage. A survey conducted by the Ann Denberg Public Policy Center and released on Constitution Day, September 17th, last year found that only half of U.S. adults could name all three branches of government, and 25% could not name any of them, according to the summary from the center. At the time, 76% of 8th graders score below proficient in civics, said Caroline Crawley, president of the U.S. Chamber Foundation, in the press release. Despite those disturbing numbers, studies show that the simple interventions, such as taking a civics class early in academic life, can make a difference in becoming active, informed, and responsible citizens. This is exactly what we hope to achieve with the National Civics Bee, to inspire new generations of Americans to be civically engaged and active in shaping the future of our communities and our nation. Modeled on traditional spelling and geography bees, the 2023 National Civics Bee builds on the success of pilot competitions held in six states in 2022, including Iowa. This year, the competition expanding to nine states, including Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, New Mexico, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Washington, and ultimately aims to engage students in all 50 states. 
To be eligible to participate in the Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce Civics B, an applicant must be a student in grades 6 through 8 and enter only one local chamber competition, which must be in their state of residence. Entries must be submitted in English and must be a new, unique entry if they have participated in any past Civics Bs. Local chambers in each state will recruit 6th, 7th, and 8th grade students to take part in a first-round essay competition, proposing a civic solution to a community problem. After a distinguished panel reviews the 500-word essays, the top 20 students in each community will participate in their local competition, which will include a live quiz and $500 cash prize for first place. The top three finalists from each local event will then advance to the state competition, competing for a chance to receive various prizes, including $1,000 cash for the first place student. Next up, we have the face of the day, which is Tim Mitchell. Tim Mitchell brings 40 years of education experience, 27 as a superintendent, to his new role on the IOS Foundation Advisory Committee. Much of his time was spent at schools in South Dakota until 2016 when he joined the Riverside Community School District, which serves communities of Oakland, Carson, and Macedonia. He tells a story of when he graduated from high school, his dad was the school board president and signed and handed him his diploma on stage. Similarly, when he graduated from Yankton College, his dad was the college president and signed and handed him his diploma on stage. It was not until Mitchell earned his master's degree that he received a diploma without his dad's signature. Now, he is the one signing them. When Mitchell is in school, you can find him volunteering for the Oakland Lions Club and the Optimist Club or camping along the Missouri River. The Los Hills area has a beautiful countryside with amazing landforms and much to enjoy in nature like camping, boating, fishing, hiking, and biking, he said. Mitchell married, is married with three stepdaughters and five grandchildren. Next up, a piece on stargazing. Brightest Stars of Winter Now Overhead by Bob Allen. The somewhat moderate temperatures recently have made stargazing a little easier to tolerate with having to overdress, without having to overdress. Those conditions will probably change before too long, but it's nice while it lasts. The southwest Iowa winter skies are loaded with bright stars and many casual stargazers often comment that the cold weather seems to magnify their brilliance. It is true that winter skies are especially clear because of the lower humidity in the air when compared to the hazy summer evenings, but there is another reason. Stars seem to be so much brighter because of Earth's dark sky is facing the area of the heavens where an abundance of brighter stars are located. Orion, the hunter, is by far the largest and brightest of the winter star groupings. The location in the high southern sky is well marked by three stars which make up his belt. In order from these, in order from the lower left to upper right, these stars are named Adnatak, Alananam, and Mintaka. Two other main stars which make up Orion's right and left shoulder are named Beltagusi and Bellatrix, respectively. To the bottom of the constellation lie the two stars, Scythe, marking Orion's right foot, and Rigel, a brilliant blue-white star representing his left. Belda Geese and Rigel are notable not only because of their brightness, but because of their colors. Their individual sizes mark them as monsters when compared to other stars. Rigel is a blue-white supergiant that emits 50,000 times the light of our sun. Estimates place Rigel at about 1,500 light years from Earth. Betelgeuse, on the other hand, lies approximately 550 light years from Earth, and it is a leading example of a red supergiant. Once you've located the three belt stars of Orion, look down a short distance from the middle star and see if you can find a dim, fuzzy ball of light. This fuzzy object is known as M42, the Great Nebula in Orion. It is visible with the naked eye. Binoculars or a telescope will reveal its true image.
considered a nursery for new stars, M42 is a tremendous cloud of gas that has become fluorescent because of the ultraviolet radiation coming from the young hot stars embedded within it. One method in determining the quality of a telescope's optics is to see if it will resolve the four stars called the trapezium, which can be found in the heart of the nebula. After your ventures with Orion, look straight down towards the southern horizon for a tremendously bright star that is named Sirius. I'll have more about the star in a later column at nonpareilonline.com. You are listening to the Council of Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, January 26, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Kirby Nelson from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. In the obituary section, we have Joseph J. Sauter. Joseph J. Sauter, age 73, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, born May 9, 1949, in Omaha, Nebraska, and graduated from Omaha Creighton Prep in 1967. Joseph passed January 23, 2023. He is survived by his wife, Pat Sauter, two sons, Corey and Casey, his siblings, Jim, Janice, Fox, Jerry, Jeff, Johnny, Jeanne, Horton, Julie Jan, Julie Han, Joel, and Jay, his six grandchildren, and his sister-in-law, Sandy Cole, Bonnie Feginson, Linda Cole, and Linda Milliken. Joseph was preceded in death by parents Tom and Rita Sutter and his mother and father-in-law, Bill and Francis Cole. Joseph was a devoted practicing Catholic at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Council Bluffs. Funeral Mass Friday, 10 a.m. at the St. Patrick Catholic Church, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Intermet Omaha National Cemetery, Friday, 3.30 p.m., Visitation Thursday, starting at 5 o'clock p.m., and Rosary at 6 o'clock p.m. at St. Patrick's Church, memorials directed by the family. In memoriam, Dylan Ruby, 10 years ago, we lost you. We never did get you back. You never asked for help. You didn't show your pain. We wish you would have. In all of these past years and all of the years to come, you were forever missed by your family your friends, and by us. Love and miss you, kid. The lower keys. Next up, we got some sports news, starting with prep basketball. Rames sweep Panthers, Eagle team sweep Loma. Tuesday night, basketball scoreboard by Austin Heinen. Glenwood 52, Creston 43. The Rams got off to a hot start, scoring 25 points in the first quarter and held a 13-point lead at halftime to fend off a second-half push by the Panthers. Jenna Hopp had a double-double for Glenwood with 24 points and 10 rebounds and was honored before the game for becoming the school's all-time leading scorer with her 36-point performance against North Bend Central. Donica Arnold added another 10 points. Trainer 65, Tri-Center 26. Class 2A, number 8, Trainer exploded to a 44-8 lead by halftime and never allowed the Trojans to get their offense going. Clara Tiglin had 13 points and Nora Collins had te- put in 10 points for the cards. Cassie Cunningham had 9 points for Tri-Center. Underwood 47, Logan Magnolia 30. A key fourth quarter where the East where the Eagles outscored the Panthers 18-5, helped Class 2A number 7 Underwood pull away from an athletic Loma team. Eliza Jacobson had a monster game with 18 points and 20 rebounds. Delaney Ambrose chipped in another 9 points for the Eagles. AHSTW 55, Missouri Value 45. 
After a slow first quarter where the Lady Vikes scored just three points, AHSTW found a rhythm in the second half to take the lead over the Lady Reds and pull away. Ellie Peterson led AHSTW with 16 points, Sadie Paulson had a double-double with 13 points and 13 rebounds, and Delaney Gosborne scored another 12. Adobon, 45, Riverside, 32. The Wheelers took a slim lead by the end of the first quarter and slowly built it up to defeat Riverside and Adobon. Isla Richardson led the Bulldogs with 7 points. Boys. Glenwood, 74, Creston, 72. Caden Johnson hit two three free throws with five seconds left in the game to boost the Rams over the Panthers in a thrilling Hawkeye 10 conference game. Risto LaPaula had 23 points, Logan Eckhart added 18 points while collecting 11 rebounds, and Johnson pitched in 11 points and dished out six assists. Tri-Center 54, Traynor 48. The Trojans stormed out to a 34-18 lead by halftime to hold off a big fourth-quarter run from the Cardinals in Yola. Michael Turner had 21 points and five assists to lead the Trojans. Isaac Wool Hunter added eight points and 10 rebounds, and Christian Dahir also chipped in eight points while collecting 15 rebounds. AHSTW 71, Missouri Value 36. Class 2A, number 7, AHSTW had three players score double figures as the Vikings won their first of three consecutive road games. Kyle Sternberg scored 20 points with 7 rebounds, while Braden Lund added 17 points and 9 rebounds, and Abe McIntosh had 10 points. Underwood 54, Logan Magnolia 43. Underwood built a 15-point lead by halftime and a 20-point lead heading into the fourth quarter to help fend off a fourth-quarter rally by the Panthers. Jack Van Hassen led the Eagles with 16 points and 15 rebounds. Luke Sealander scored 11 for Underwood and Mason Boothby had 10. Riverside 60, Adobun 40. The Bulldogs snapped a four-day, four-game losing streak as they went on a key run in the first and third quarters to pull away from the Wheelers. Grady Jeppinson led Riverside with 34 points and Aiden Solars added another 13 points. Next up... We have Link's Complete Season Sweep Over Yellow Jackets by Austin Heinen. Abraham Lincoln used two first-quarter runs to pull ahead and seize control of the game, quickly en route to a 70-35 win. The two first-quarter runs were exactly what Link's coach Jason Isaacson wanted to see after taking on a Yellow Jacket team that hit nine threes in the first half of their last game. Setting the tempo was just what Link's wanted. That's a dangerous team, Link's coach Jason Isaacson said. We really made an emphasis on defending the three-point line and being really good with our help side defense to disrupt them. Offensively, when we play selfless like we did tonight, we can be really good. The Lynx started the game on an 8-0 run to quickly take the lead. The Yellow Jackson's jackets hung around a bit and found themselves down 9 with about 2 minutes to go in the first quarter until the Lynx went on an 11-0 run to push the lead to 20 points, 26-6 after the first quarter. The Lynx scored the first six points of the yellow quarter. However, the Yellow Jackets didn't let the lead grow much bigger as some steals and fast breaks started bringing the Jackets' offense to life. The Lynx continued to extend their lead as they outscored the Jackets 19-6 in the third quarter and had their offense rolling inside and out all night long. We are trying to get the ball in the paint, Matt Mahawk said. Whenever they came and doubled, I knew I could kick it out and one of the teammates was going to get a look at an open three. Now we got to go get another big one on Friday, and then next week is another big week with Sioux City East and West and Valley. We know we've got some big games ahead. An emphasis for us is always going to be to get Matt touches when he, usually when he can, Isaacson said. Usually other teams have to do something defensively that's going to open it up for other players, and that's what you saw sometimes tonight. 
Mathok and Jaden Calibro co-led the links with 16 points each, and Creighton Bractor had 13 points. Timothy Calibro led the Yellow Jackets with 12 points. The Lynx will be back on Friday against Sergeant Luff Lutton at 7 p.m. Lynx offense outpowers Yellow Jackets. The Lynx girls hit the gas from the tip-off with a 23-3 run to span through the first quarter and rolled through the night of, for the Missouri River Conference with 70-25 at the Thomas Jefferson Activity Center. We talked about coming in here and starting things quickly and getting stops defensively, and we did that well, Lynx coach Chad Shaw said. We shot the ball really well in the first half, inside and outside the arc. We shot the ball really well. When you shoot like that, it's a snowball effect. When one of the players gets going, everyone starts playing at that level of confidence, and that's exactly what we did. We built off each other today. The Lynx kept pouring it on in the second quarter. The Yellow Jackets showed some life late in the quarter with a 6-0 spur as they tried to get their offense going, but AL's Megan Alam converted a rare four-point play, and Emily Pomernakis sank another three right before the half to end the first half at 7-0 run. Three Lynx had 10 points or better by halftime. Thus, Shaw and his players were very pleased with how their offense went in the first half, as Gina Carr had 10 points, Pomernax 11, and Alam had 14. Whenever I wasn't able to get a good look at the hoop, I was able to kick it out, and I know my teammates are going to hit those shots, Carl said. Everyone really pushed themselves today, and it really showed through with a score. The second half brought more of the same as the Lynx maintained the lead through the third quarter and extended it further in the fourth. Gina Carl led all the scores with 21 points, Megan Alam added another 15 points for the Lynx, and Emily Pomernakis scored 14 points for the Lynx. Taryn Gant led the Yellow Jackets with 16 points. We just had a really good rhythm going offensively tonight, Shaw said. We really needed a night like this where we shot the ball well. We've struggled a bit as of late, but we found the right way to shoot the ball tonight. Everyone hit some shots tonight. The Lynx will be back in action Friday when they host Sergeant Bluff Laton on Friday at 5.30 p.m. The Yellow Jackets play again on Friday where they will host Lamars at 5.30 p.m. Next story for today in sports is Purdy goes from Mr. Irrelevant to Brink of Super Bowl by John Dubow. Brock Purdy's NFL career started with a moniker of Mr. Irrelevant and a week-long trip to Newport Beach to celebrate the player pick last in the draft. With one more win, Purdy's rookie season in the NFL will end on the brightest stage of all as a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl for the San Francisco 49ers. It's been an improbable nine-month journey from the trip to Disneyland golf tournament in a roast where he received the Lousman Trophy as the last draft pick to the NFC title game on Sunday when the 49ers visit the Philadelphia Eagles. Going to NFL NFC championship, it means a lot to us and for myself, Purdy said. When I take a step back, it's pretty cool. Very thankful. Purdy is set for perhaps his toughest test yet on Sunday. When he faces an Eagles defense that led the NFL with 70 sacks, and must deal with an imposing road environment. Purdy handled the crowd noise well in his first road start at Seattle last month with coach Kyle Shanahan telling him at the time it was important to deal with that before the postseason. He did say it was good preparation for what we might have to play in terms of the playoffs, going on the road for road games, and obviously Philadelphia, Purdy said. In these kind of games, it's all about communication. How can you operate smoothly, get in and out of the huddle, get the play off the right way, make sure everyone is on the same page? So that's definitely a big emphasis this week. Purdy has aced every test he's faced so far and has already become one of the most productive Mr. Irrelevant since the title was first handed out in 1976. He's the third rookie quarterback ever to play to win two playoff starts, the fifth to reach the conference title game as a starter, and will look to be the first to reach the Super Bowl. 
Pretty impressive for the ninth quarterback taken in the draft, but not a complete surprise to the supremely confident Purdy or the Niners who saw flashes during Purdy's limited work in training camp. San San Francisco cut Nate Sudfield in order to keep Purdy as the third quarterback and team didn't lose any confidence when he was forced to take over early in week 13 after Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt. Purdy helped the Niners win the game against Miami and has won all seven starts since then, posting an NFL best 110.4 passer rating in the span with 16 touchdowns and only three interceptions. A San Francisco offense filled with playmakers such as Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, and Brandon Ayuk have, has gotten better instead of regressing with a rookie slow, running the show. We stopped looking at him as a rookie quarterback when he took over, and he stopped looking at himself like that probably right when he got drafted. Right tackle Mike McClinchy said, he's done a great job. I can't say enough good things about him. The history of rookie quarterbacks making it this far in the postseason is not very successful with Sean King, 1999, Ben Rollis-Berger, 2004, Joe Flacco, 2008, and Mark Sanchez, 2009, all losing in that round. The four combined for 51.8 passer rating in the title games with nine interceptions, four touchdown passes, and just 196.8 yards passing per game. But Purdy has already exceeded the performance of almost all rookie quarterbacks in the postseason. He became the first rookie to account for four touchdowns in a playoff game and a wild card win over Seattle where his 332 yards passing were the most for a rookie in his first playoff start since Sammy Baugh threw for a 335 in the NFL title game in 1937 to lead Washington past Chicago. Purdy wasn't nearly as productive last week against Dallas's tough defense, throwing for 214 yards with no touchdowns. But he, but he once again pr- protected the ball with no turnovers, giving him consecutive playoff games with at least 200 yards and no turnovers. No other rookie has done that even once. He's been unbelievable with that, Shanahan said. I think that the number one thing he's done and to be able to be as good with the ball as he has while still making a number of the plays that he's been that he has, that's definitely the thing I've been most impressed with. Purdy has pulled off many impressive feats since taking over with his new ability to extend plays, adding a new element to a dyna- to a dynamic San Francisco offense. That has helped the Niners score an NFL best 32.6 points per game since he stepped in against the first drive against the Dolphins. I'm not shocked anymore, McAfee said. It's just who he is now. Next up, Mahomes, the old man among four NFL conference title games quarterbacks by Josh DeBow. Patrick Mahomes will be the old man among the starting quarterbacks in the conference title games. The 27-year-old All-Pro for Kansas City is the oldest member of one of the youngest groups of starting quarterbacks to make it to this round. The other three scheduled starting quarterbacks on Sunday are 26-year-old Joe Burham from Cincinnati, 24-year-old Jalen Hurts for Philadelphia, and 23-year-old rookie Brock Purdy from San Francisco. The only other time all four starting quarterbacks in the game conference title game hasn't yet turned 28 came in 1996 when Brett Favre, 27, Mark Brunel, 26, Drew Bledsoe, 24, and Kerry Collins, Collins, 24, got there. Getting to this stage isn't new for Mahomes and Burrow. Mahomes has reached the AFC, AFC title game in all five seasons as a starter and can join Tom Brady as the only starting qu- quarterback to reach the Super Bowl three times in their first six season with a win on Sunday. Burrow won his fifth playoff starting last week against Buffalo, joining Russell Wilson, six, and Ben Rossenberg, five, as the only qu- other quarterbacks to win at least five starts in their first three season in the NFL. 
While Burrow was the number one draft pick in 2020 and Mahomes went 10th in 2017, Hertz and Purdy had more improbable journeys to the stage. Hertz was picked in the second round in 2020 and Purdy went with the last pick in the 2022 draft. The winner on Sunday will join Colin Kaepernick, Russell Wilson, Nick Foles, and Jimmy Garoppolo as the only ones of the 192 quarterbacks taken after the first round in the draft since 2002 to get to the Super Bowl. Purdy has already had a noteworthy run, joining Joe Flacco and Mark Sanchez as the only rookies to win two playoff starts. The only other rookies to get to the conference title game were Sean King and Rollis Berger, who did it with one win after a bye. Purdy is looking to become the first rookie to make it to the Super Bowl, with those four others all losing. They had a combined 51.8 passer rating in the title games with nine interceptions, four touchdown passes, and just 196.8 yards passing per game. Rematch. The Bengals and Chiefs will meet in the AFC title game for the second straight season, joining Rare Company for title game rematches. Since the merger in 1970, the only other teams to meet in the conference title game in back-to-back seasons are the Cowboys and 49ers, the Steelers and Raiders, the Oilers and Steelers, the Browns and Broncos, and the Ravens and Patriots. In five of those six previous matches, the team won the first meeting, also won the second, with only Baltimore and New England splitting. The 1976 Raiders and 1994-49ers didn't win the trilogy game after losing the first two. Streaking. The 49ers and Bengals are headed into the championship weekend on impressive streaks. San Francisco has won 12 straight games and Cincinnati has won 11 in a row, joining 10 other teams that reached around on a winning streak of at least 10 games. The last team to do this was the 2007 Patriots, who won 17 straight games before beating San Diego to make the Super Bowl. Their bid for perfection ended with a loss to the Giants. Of the 10 previous teams to take winning streaks of at least 10 games into the championship game, only two failed to make the Super Bowl, the 1976 and 2004 Steelers. Five of the 10 won it all with the 2003 Patriots, 1986 Giants, 1984 49ers, 1976 Raiders, and 1972 Dolphins streaking to championships. Washington in 1983 and Atlanta in 1998 joined the 2007 Patriots as Super Bowl losers. Big Red. Kansas City coach Andy Reid reached some more milestones with his latest playoff win, which gave him 10 with the Chiefs and 10 with Philadelphia. Reid's 20 total wins in the postseason are tied with Hall of Famer Tom Laundry for the second most in NFL history, trailing only Bel- Belichick with 31. Reid has coached a team to the conference title game 10 times in the past 22 seasons, going from 2001, 2004, and in 28 with Philadelphia in the last five seasons with Kansas City. The only coaches with more conference title appearances in the Super Bowl era are Belichick, 13, and Landry, 12. Reed and the Chiefs are also joined by Belichick's Patriots and John Madden's Raiders as the only teams to get their five straight seasons. Just for kicks. San Francisco kicker Robbie Gold extended his postseason run of perfection. Gold made all four field goals tries against Dallas on Sunday as well as his one extra point attempt. That made Gold perfect on all 67 kicks he has tried in 15 postseason games for the 49ers, Giants, and Chicago. He has made all 29 field goals in all 38 extra points. The only other kicker in the NFL who has who is perfect in the postseason with at least 10 field goals is Brandon McCannis, who is 10 for 10 on field goals and 3 for 3 on extra points. Next up, we have Hertz Jefferson Mahomes lead MVP finalists by Ron Maddy. Rob Maddy. Jalen Hurts, Justin Jefferson, and Patrick Mahomes are finalists for the Associated Press 2022 NFL Most Valuable Player and Offensive Player of the Year Awards. The winners will be announced at NFL Honors on February 9th. 
a nationwide panel of 50 media members who regularly cover the league completely voting before the start of the playoffs. Bills quarterback Josh Allen and Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow also are finalists for MVP. Hertz had 3,701 yards passing, 760 yards rushing, and 35 touchdowns combined, leading the Philadelphia Eagles to a 14-3 record in the regular season and the number one seed in the NFC. The Eagles are in the NFC championship game for the second time in six seasons. Jefferson led the NFL with 128 catches and 1,809 yards, receiving in his third season with the Minnesota Vikings. Jefferson was one of the two unanimous choices for AP, All-Pro, along with Chiefs tight end Travis Kels. Mahomes, the 2018 NFL MVP, helped Kansas City go 14-3 to earn the number one seed in the AFC. The Chiefs, 15-3, are in the AFC title game for the fifth straight season. The host of the Bengals. Mahomes led the NFL with 5,250 yards passing and 41 touchdowns. He received 49 of 50 votes for the AP First Team All-Pro. San Francisco 49ers edge rusher Nick Bosa, Chiefs defensive tackle Chris Jones, and Dallas Cowboys edge rusher Micah Parsons are the finalists for AP Defense Player, Defensive Player of the Year. Bosa led the NFL with 18.5 sacks, Jones had 15.5, and, and Parsons got 14.5. Brian DeBall, Doug Peterson, and Kyle Shanaha are the finalists for AP Coach of the Year Award. DeBall led the New York Giants to a 9-7-1 record in his first season as head coach. Peterson guided the Jacksonville Jaguars to a 9-8 record in an AFC South title in his first year with the team. Shanaha led the San Francisco 49ers to a 13-4 mark, including 5-0 down the stretch with third-string rookie quarterback Brock Purdy. Purdy, Seattle's Seahawks running back Kenneth Walker three. The third, and New York Jets wide receiver Garrett Wilson are the finalists for AP Offensive Rookie of the Year. Purdy, the last player selected in the draft, began the season as third-string quarterback and stepped in after injuries to Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo. He led San Francisco to a 5-0 record with a stretch, two playoff wins, and an appearance in the NFC Championship game at Philadelphia. Walker led all rookies with 1,050 yards rushing and nine touchdowns. Wilson led all rookies with 83 catches and 1,103 yards receiving. Jets quarterback Ahmad Sauce Gardner, Detroit Lions defensive end Aiden Hutchinson, and Seahawks quarterback Tariq Woolen are the finalists for AP Defensive Rookie of the Year. New York Giants running back Sakon Berkeley, 49ers running back Christian McCarthy, and Seahawks quarterback Geno Smith are the finalists for the AP Comeback Player of the Year. Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson, 49ers defensive coordinator Demacos Ryans, and Eagles offensive coordinator Shan Stitchinson are the finalists for AP Assistant Coach of the Year. This is the first year of the AP's new voting system. Voters chose the top five for MVP and top three for all of their awards. For MVP, first place will be worth 10 points. Second, though, fifth place votes were worth five, three, two, and one points. For all the other votes, awards, first place votes equaled five points. Second were three and third were one. Moving on, we're heading over to Lifestyle, where we're going to read A Few Hotel Changes to Expect by Ed Perkins. With airline turmoil taking headlines, it's easy to overlook the fact that you'll likely spend more on hotels and air tickets in your travels this year. And the main expectation in hotel travel will probably be no surprise. Continued inflation, reduced service, and more new brands from the giant chains. The main saving grace in facing hotel prices is that trading down a, a bit is easier and less painful than it is with airlines. If your main need is simply a place to get a good sleep, today's economy hotels offer a pretty good value. The fact is likely behind Hilton's announcement that it is launching a premium economy brand. 
the company's first foray into a marketplace currently dominated by Choice, Wyndham, and Best Western. Spark will open its first properties this year, priced below Hilton's former Lower End Hampton brand. As far as I can tell, most initial locations will be conversions of properties previously operating as other brands rather than new builds. If you can't keep all different hotel brands separate in your mind, you're not alone. Hilton's new brand brings its total to 19. Choice is up to 13 brands with its new Radisson combination. IHG has 18, Hyatt has 16, and Marriott boasts 30. Some classifications are easy to understand, such as economy, mid-scale, suite, and more in extended stay. But the more recent innovation is lifestyle hotels, which, as far as I can tell, are conventional hotels with a thick application of nonsense. In Europe, giant Accor is focusing on its popular Ibis brand, now divided into at least three price sub-brands. In the UK, both mid-price giants, Premier Inn and Travel Lodge, have segmented their offerings into different price levels. On the price comparison front, I'm not sure about the outlook for deceptive resort fee charges. The Federal Trade Commission is finally looking at the problem, but that agency's track record for quick divisive action is dismal. There's no question that exclusion of mandatory fees from promoted rate is deceptive. Consumer deception, in fact, is the primary reason hotels do it. Even if the FTC punts on the issue, individual states may come to the rescue, but don't count on relief in 2023. For now, if you are honest, full-cost hotel price comparisons, your best bet remains searching on Kayak with its full-price filter. Another distressing hotel trend is the attempt by many hotels to move what should be full-play employees into a tip income category and cut them down to minimum wage. Tipping is already out of control in the U.S., and asking guests to pay big bucks for a room and then tip everyone in sight is a borderline scam or deception. Sorry to say, I don't see an easy way to avoid this problem. Hotels try to shame you into excessive tipping by placing envelopes in the room, and I wouldn't be surprised to see tip jars show up on registration desks. The problem isn't going away anytime soon. Similarly, you can expect more and more hotels to skip daily housekeeping, often with the excuse that less laundry is good for the environment. Personally, I don't mind having my bed made every other day rather than daily, but I can understand folks who want their room tidied up every day. That's going to that's going away in a lot of hotels. Overall, when you reserve room, most hotels will continue to offer lower prices if you pay in full, non-refundable in advance. My take so far has been that the difference between the best non-refundable rate and the best no advance rate isn't going to be enough to cover the risk that I might have to change the itinerary. But sometimes that non-refundable will look enticing. Just make sure to weigh the risk carefully before you commit. Otherwise, getting the best deal remains as it has been. Look for promotions and revert to standard AAA or AARP rates when you can't find a better deal. Next up, we have Lost My Glasses and Didn't See It Coming by Lori Borgman. If life is a pie chart with different size slices for eating, sleeping, working, the biggest slice of my pie would be looking for my reading glasses. I have a main pair, a backup pair in the kitchen, a backup pair on a bedside table, and an emergency pair in my purse. It's not like I didn't see this coming. The thing is, I don't have, like to resort to a backup pair because that is an admission of failure that I cannot find the main pair. I've stopped asking my better half if he has seen my glasses because the answer is always the same. Without even looking up, he said, did you check on the top of your head? Okay, so maybe that's where they are at sometimes. Maybe that's even where the two pairs are sometimes. The man is completely without sympathy, and I can tell you why. He lives in a world with pockets. Nearly every shirt he owns has a pocket, and a pocket for glasses. My shirts and sweaters do not have pockets. The second largest slice of on my pie chart would be looking for my cell phone. Pocket inequity is why I also dash around fine yelling, I can't find my phone, somebody call me, somebody call me. 
somebody whips out their cell phone to call me, and I suddenly remember I put my phone on silent. Should I divert attention from how no one will be able to hear my phone? I quickly switch back to, has anyone seen my glasses? The third largest slice of my pie chart will be looking for my car keys. 99% of the time, my car keys are in my purse, but it is a large purse. Think 50-gallon flex steel trash bag. It's, it is it is the Bermuda Triangle. I once found a plane in my purse. It was made of Legos, but you get the idea. I have a memory foam pillow, but not even that helps. Three problem is leaving home without one of the big three. If I leave without glasses, the phone is useless. If I leave without my phone, the glasses don't matter. If I leave without keys, but remember my phone and glasses, I wind up sitting in the car catching up on text on my phone. Recently, I discovered a fix for making sure I have my three essentials leaving before leaving the house. The key is memnonics. Song and hand motions are remember. Remember singing hand, shoulders, knees, and toes with kids? Tweak it a little bit, add glasses, keys, and phones, and you will never, never again leave home without the essentials. Just be careful so when you do the arm motions and bend over, the glasses don't fall off the top of your head. Next up, we have a section that is Ask Amy. Eldest siblings worry about mom's elder care. Dear Amy, I have three siblings. I'm the oldest, 10 years older than the next sibling. My wife and I now are in our mid-70s. We are retired and live on Social Security, her modest teacher's pension, and a six-figure nest egg. Two of my siblings have large incomes and considerable real estate holdings. Another brother and his wife have professional jobs. All the grandchildren in the family are now adults and on their own. The controversy involves my 100-year-old mother who lives in the east near my siblings in an expensive care facility. We live in another part of the country. My siblings insist that we share the cost in equal measure. We have offered to take care for my mother in our home at no cost to them but they have rejected the offer. I believe that contributions should be based on individual circumstances and ability to pay. The disagreement has caused a rift among us. Is there a solution here? Dear Stuck, moving your 100-year-old mother to another part of the country to live in your home does not seem like a viable option. I agree with you that siblings should contribute to an elder's care according to their circumstances and ability to pay. When your siblings chose to move your mother into this expensive home, you should have made it clear at the outset that this was unaffordable for you. Given your older age and more modest assets, you need to be careful with your own spending. And your younger siblings may not quite grasp how far, how for many people retirement drops in, an extreme drop in income, along with the possibility of an increased expenses. This is a, you can't get blood from a stone situation, but you should offer to be of service to your mother in order to share the burden with your siblings. At the very least, you could offer to come to the area in order to be with your mother during times when your siblings need to be away. Dear Amy, I've known Stacy for 10 years. Not too long ago, Stacy had to move to another city because she was catfishing several people and it turned into a huge mess. Recently, she's been behaving in ways that are out of character. I've noticed that every time she and I go somewhere together, a guy who is not her husband always comes along. She and I have identical cell phone colors on our phone, and recently, when she and I were together, I accidentally picked up her phone and saw a very explicit message from this other guy on her phone. I think she is catfishing people again. What should I do? Should I say something to her or keep this to myself? Dear, you're very confused. You say your friend Stacy is behaving in a way that is out of character, but your description of her behavior seems to be very consistent with her character. To clarify, catfish, catfishing is the practice of someone pretending to be someone else online in order to fish for unsuspecting people who are most often looking for a romantic relationship. Stacy is always showing up with a man who is not her husband. You saw an explicit text message on her phone that you find disturbing. She's a history of being a catfish. Yes, you should ask her what she is up to. Prepare yourself for her answer. 
And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council of Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, January 26, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Kirby Nelson from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening. <laughs>